Hello. Hi. Happy holiday week. Happy holiday week. How have you been? I have been exhausted <laughs> and quite burnt out, but I'm doing okay. Um, just trying to navigate through, you know, final exams and this semester um got a little bit heavy with like group projects so i feel like like coordinating like meetings and then making sure that like you know i have like xyz task on one one project and then you know a bunch of other tasks on another i'm like trying to make sure that i'm fulfilling all those deadlines so it's just been a little bit overwhelming but it's it's going well so far how about you yeah i feel like this semester for some reason has just been like way more than last like even though I'm taking less classes it just feels more overwhelming I don't know if it's because I switched jobs and like now with this new job I'm just like oh my god like I am so burnt out like just with everything going on yeah but only two more weeks of class you know I cannot believe that because I remember you know some weeks ago I was looking and I was like man like we're only at week six like feel like this is kind of dragging and then now all of a sudden it's week 14 and I'm like okay like let's slow down a little week 14 yeah that's crazy I know know. we're almost done I know (laughs) hopefully we can get some of our teachers on the pod I like kind of forgot that we were gonna I know but we are supposed to have um Dr. Genevieve Giuliano coming on because I have spoken with her and so um I'm hoping to get that coordinated soon. I just think like with classes and everything, I didn't want right. to, you know, reach out and be like, hey, on top of all of the things you're doing, like, can yeah. you also? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, but that's, that should be in the works. Um, And we'll start talking about, obviously with her more transportation oriented stuff. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's going to be really exciting and definitely I, I think Peter should come on. Mm-hmm. So yeah, going to be fun. Yeah. Um, okay. So we got a question on Instagram, a DM. This person said, hello, big fan of your podcast. I understand. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I understand that you'll work while going to school, but I was wondering if you are working full time and how accommodating professors are slash how does your class schedule conflict or work with your work schedule? Um, so I thought that we could just kind of talk about that a little bit in the introduction before we dive into our topic, because I think that's probably a question that a lot of people have like going into or like thinking about going into grad school. Yeah, definitely. But in my case, I have worked part time, like the whole time that I've been in this program. Um, I typically max out at 24 hours, which is different than not, but I think like in terms of class, I usually set my class schedule um, and then talk to work. Like I don't, I wouldn't say that professors would be very like accommodating if you, your work schedule conflicted because like, that's just kind of not how it works. Like, I think that it's important that you communicate with your work and your supervisors and work your work schedule around your classes. Absolutely. I would definitely second that, especially because I guess well, I'll speak only in the case of USC because it's the only school that I had discussed this with. But when I first started, I remember um, asking our academic advisor, you know, can I work full time? And she said that the program is built so that you either should not be working at all 
or that you should only be working a maximum of 20 hours. And then it was a little bit confusing because we have a requirement to do internship hours. So I was kind of like, what do you mean we can't work? Mm -hmm. um, but I think she just meant like, maybe, you know, you can't work a full-time job, I would say. Right. Um, but yeah, so they do tell us like, you should really anticipate only doing about 20 hours a week. Um, I, however, did not listen to that. <laughs> But um, yeah, I I would say definitely to Sam's point, you have to understand that you're going to a program with the expectation that you're committing your two years to getting your master's degree done. Mm -hmm. um, and so you should be essentially scheduling your work hours around that. And I will say, I think in both talking to Sam, talking to other students, and then also my personal experience, many agencies who know that you are a student and are hiring you with the understanding that you're in a master's program are very, very flexible and quite understanding of yeah. class schedules. Um, and so, Sam, I don't know if you want to talk about your hours and then I can go over mine. Yeah. Um, so I've worked for two different agencies, one in the public sector and now in the private sector since I've been in school, both very understanding of like, my schedule and definitely our understanding if like during midterms or finals, if I like need to cut back my hours a little bit to focus on school, like every person that I've ever worked under has said like, you're a student first, you're an intern second or whatever, like this is your priority right now, like you should be prioritizing school. Yeah. So yeah, it's been like very nice in that respect. And then right now I have class two days a week. Um, so I work nine to six, like eight hour days, the other three, which is how I get to 24. Um, I feel like most people in our program who work, which I would say most people work. Um, I would say most people are part-time. There are some people with full-time jobs and I genuinely don't know how they do it. Yeah, I got, so for the most part, I work between 30 and 35 hours a week. Um, last semester I was working 36 hours a week and I genuinely do not know how I did that, but essentially I think it's be number one, I think 100% it's because a lot of jobs and mine specifically is remote. And mm -hmm. so you're not factoring in a commute, mm -hmm. which allows you to work more hours, number one. And then number two, we have USC specifically, um, offers a significant amount of night classes right. uh, between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. Um, and so I do believe that allows, you know, students to basically work a full day mm -hmm. um, at work and then go to class at night. Although that, I will say, is very, very overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and I really experienced severe burnout last semester um, because I did that. But I think, you know, your class schedule is fixed essentially you have yeah. whatever time options and so that's really where you are going to have to work your you know your job hours according to your school schedule because you can't really flex a school schedule um yeah, so yeah. like we do have some like mandatory core classes that are from like right. 2 to 5 20 so it's exactly. like yeah. you're gonna you you can't just like not Exactly. <laughs> right. So yeah. So for me, I do have one class that's two to five twenty, and then I have two classes that are six p.m. to nine p.m. Um, so it's three in total, and then I'm working right now again, like I said, between thirty and thirty-five hours. Basically, my job 
understands that I have committed to them working 30 hours, but if I am able to work more, I just, obviously I work more. Mm -hmm. Um, and so on Mondays, I don't work at all. And for the rest of the week, I work, um, three, eight hour shifts and one six hour shift. Um, and so that's how I am balancing right now. That's how my, my work and school schedule is going. I will say like, it's definitely difficult because, you know, on Tuesday, like you're up, you're working and then you're driving to campus and then you're going to a class six to nine and then I'm driving home. And then also I have like a much longer commute because I don't live in Los Angeles. So it can be a bit overwhelming. And that's why I kind of tell people like, if you financially could work about 20 hours, I would say that's probably like a healthy maximum to stick with. And I, I definitely understand why USC says like, do that. However, if financially you feel that you do need to work more, um, it's quite doable, I will say. It's just that it's going to be hard. And that's something that you just need to kind of prepare yourself for. Yeah, I agree. At one point I was working 30 because I had two jobs and it was definitely a lot. But at the end of the day, like you have to do what you have to do. And as long as you're like being productive, like on weekends and If you can't do every single reading, that's okay. <laughs> do that for me. Yeah. But, you know, you just make it work. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I will say like some professors can be understanding in certain circumstances. Like I remember I had a work event that fell. It was like an evening work event and it fell during a class hour. And I did ask my professor if it would be okay if I could attend the work event and they were like, yeah, that's totally fine. Like, so long as you're not doing that every week and, you know, you're, you're, you know, committing a majority of your time to attending class. I, I don't think they, they will have an issue if like maybe something comes up with work, but I definitely would say just school should be your number one priority and work definitely comes second as difficult as that, that is, but it's just a, it's a two-year commitment. Nothing, nothing crazy. <laughs> Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. Okay, should we dive into it? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so we're starting a little mini, like, not a series, but we're going to do a couple episodes talking about freeways and highways. And today we are going to go a little bit into the history of how eminent domain has been used in like highway expansion. So um, do you want to tell us what eminent domain is? Yeah, I, w- I would love to. <laughs> um, so basically eminent domain is the power of the United States government the states or any municipality to take private property for public use. And this is essentially done with the intention of justly compensating whoever they're taking the private property from. However, we have seen throughout history that this really is not the case. And I actually remember when I was uh, just starting at USC, I was discussing eminent domain and and how there have been many instances in which people have had their homes taken away from them and they have not been justly compensated. And one individual that I was speaking with had said 
well, no, that's that's not accurate. Like they have to justly compensate them. It's the market value of the property. But the problem is that when we discuss eminent domain, often it's the market value of the land and not the home on the land. So that can cause some problems because you're not being significantly, or I'm sorry, you're not being justly compensated when it, they're only taking the value of the land. If they are to take the value of the home as well, often these are appraisers that have intentions of making sure that they're appraising at a lower value. And so that can complicate things. And then also you are not considering the fact that you are taking somebody away from a community in which they've established themselves. And that's, there's no compensation for that. You are removing someone from a community that they have built or that they live in. You're taking away their neighbors. You're taking away what they know and are familiar with. And you're basically forcing them to relocate. And that's not necessary. And that's not something, especially when that's not something they want to do. Um, and so eminent domain can be a bit problematic. You know, everybody says there is, you know, the, the following of a payment that's, you know, just compensation, but that is definitely not always the case because there are certain things that you cannot compensate for. And so um, just wanted to add that in there. Um, but yeah, eminent domain is essentially government seizure of uh, private property for public use, and, and it has to be for reasonable public use. Um, and so this is basically where the federal highway system comes in, what an eminent domain played a, a significant role in that. Yeah. And I think something interesting just to add is um, when we were talking about like affordable housing development in our class and we talked about appraisers and how like 98% of them are like white and yes. like 95% are men or something. Yes. So there's definitely a lot of bias and like subjectivity in appraising home values or land values and um so that like you said plays into this compensation and if it is like truly just or if it's well I mean and you and I I'm pretty sure we have talked about this on the podcast maybe not maybe you and I have just been talking to each other about it before but like just recently there was an article in which a professor was getting his home appraised I think to refinance and um, they got a value that they were completely shocked by. And so um, this was a family of color and they ended up removing all of their photos, family photos in the home. And they had a white husband and wife stand in for them during the appraisal. And they got, I think it was like $300,000 more that mm -hmm. the appraisal was, was at. So it's like, this is very subjective and that's really problematic. And so I definitely think that, you know, it's it's an issue to say that, oh, well, we're going to have an appraiser come and you're going to be justly compensated because you don't actually know if that's the case or if that's going to be the case. Right. Um, yeah. So basically how this ties in with highway expansion is um, a lot of times that the federals or in this case, the federal government wanted to, you know, create more freeways or expand the freeways, they would use eminent domain to seize private property to like build the freeway through communities. Um, and so that the impetus of that was the Federal Highway Act of 1956, which provided for a 65,000 kilometer national system of interstate and defense highways to be built over 13 years. And the federal government gave about $24.8 billion um, to that effort. And it was like, like it says the defense highways. So it was, um, like 
I'm guessing like military purposes. Yeah, essentially the justification was we need the federal highway system because, and I actually think my dad talked about it when we when we had him on. The oh, podcast. okay. But, so long ago. Yeah, I know it really was, but um, he'll be back. <laughs> um, but basically, the the justification was, you know if we're in a crisis and we need, uh, you know, goods moved to our military bases or we need our weapons transferred or we need, you know, um, uh, military intervention, there needs to be a way for them to get through the country quickly. And so the the Federal Highway Act basically became the catalyst to getting getting efficient highways built so that, and the justification was it was for our national defense. Right, okay. Right. Yeah. Um, but as we know, at this time, there were a lot of laws in place or not laws, I guess some implicitly, but like restrictive covenants and redlining that kind of segregated cities and municipalities and determined where different people were allowed to live. And so it might not be that surprising that when they were looking for land to kind of take over to expand these highways a lot of the times it was through communities of color and low-income communities where they could appraise the land lower and pay out less money for this compensation and um yeah yeah and also this was if you consider what we have talked about with redlining and uh with restrictive covenants. Also, communities of color already off the bat had lower land value because of all of the factors that we have just discussed on multiple podcasts, but land value was already lower. So they were very eager to kind of take advantage of that. And you had highways that were basically when a lot of laws were being overturned, such as uh, redlining or restrictive covenants, the Federal Highway Act had kind of, you know, was passed and the Federal Highway expansion was was beginning. And so sometimes you actually saw that these highways were built right on the formal boundary lines uh, of communities where racial zoning existed. And so there were even, um, as was quoted in an NPR article, there were sometimes even community members that asked highway builders to create a barrier between their community and encroaching black communities. And so there was very much racist undertones to a lot of highway expansion. And it's something that definitely needs to be acknowledged because the there have been multiple studies and articles that I have read where they basically did an analysis of our existing highway system. And they found that it would have been more efficient to put highways in different communities and and most of the time these were majority white communities but these were also communities in which there would be a lot more backlash they had a lot more resources to fight things like that there's also an article that discussed that often when people were fighting against highways being put in their community they did it with the statements of protecting community parks and public open space and so often those were the cases that won versus communities of color that were fighting to to not have a freeway put in their community and those were often not even considered or those voices were completely ignored and so we kind of see a system that essentially 
furthered segregation at the end of laws that were creating segregation. And so I think it's just definitely something that people don't often consider because obviously when you're driving on the highway, you think, okay, well, you know, people, whoever planned this, like they, you know, they were just trying to make it the most efficient. And that's definitely not the case because there has been multiple analyses where they have found that these, some of our, our highway systems that were built are not very efficient in terms of where they were located. Right. Yeah, I was going to say something and I forgot. I like it just vanished. Maybe it'll come back. It'll come back. Um, so I think it would be helpful if we kind of dive into like a case study um, of kind of when this was used and the impacts that it had. And interestingly enough, I am in a critical cartography class right now. Um, and critical cartography is I'm hoping that my professor will come on the pod because the work that she does is really unique, I think, and she would be able to describe it a lot better than me. But the way that I understand it is kind of like looking up like phenomena through a different lens of like, oh, well, we want to like map this. Mm-hmm. We don't need to just like put it in like a Cartesian two dimensional map. Like we can map it via video or via like, st- like story, like ArcGIS has like story maps. Um yeah. Or like just different types of mediums, which I think is really, really, really interesting and just different ways of visualizing people and habits and patterns and stuff. Um, But I, in my class, am partnered with 18th Street Art Center in the city of Santa Monica, and we are looking into the Mexican history of Santa Monica. And if I'm being completely honest, like I am not from LA, but I didn't even know that there was some Mexican history in Santa Monica, really. Like I just wasn't aware of it. And so looking into it, it's been super interesting to kind of read about how, you know, California was a land grant and then there was all these ranchos and then they sold the ranchos and now Santa Monica has like turned into what it is today, like a huge tourist um, destination and a majority white community. Mm -hmm. Um, But the city of Santa Monica before the 10 freeway, which is called the Santa Monica freeway was built in 19 in the night, like mid 1960s, the city of Santa Monica actually used eminent domain to force thousands of families out of their homes and make way for this freeway and for the city's civic auditorium. Um, and these are both like considered urban renewal projects, which we've talked about being kind of like usually like racially charged where it's like, Oh, like this dilapidated land, like we could make it into something great. And whatever. Um, But in the area that was pretty much split in half by this freeway, it's called the Pico neighborhood. And it had uh, the city's largest um, community of Black, Latino, uh, Asian slash low-income residents. And this was due to other things like we were talking about, like restrictive covenants in the city, um, redlining. Like it's really crazy like even the beaches in Santa Monica were um like I guess redlined you could say like there was certain parts of the beach where people of color could go and there were certain parts where only white people could go um and so this whole like phenomena of eminent domain and the like freeways coming in is very present probably near any freeway but they did a they like did a survey and it 
looked like 17 years was the average time that families were, had been in their homes when they were taken, Wow, which is crazy. Yeah. And so that just shows like you were saying, like there's whole communities, mm-hmm. like there's people that have become like family with the people that live near them. They had small businesses, they had thriving mm-hmm. communities. And it was just like, you can't compensate for that. Yeah. Like it's just crazy. And yeah. then like on top of that, like most of the people who were like their homes were taken from them, they weren't compensated enough to be able to afford elsewhere in Santa Monica if they like could move there. Like there's still places where it would have been like hostile environments for people of color to go. Yeah. And a lot of the people in the Pico neighborhood were of lower income. And so the fact that they had compensated them um, like not probably not justly, like they couldn't even afford to live there anymore. It's just, it's really sad to like read about this. And then like uh, the 18th street art center has been doing like culture mapping in Santa Monica, which is where people can like propose different sites that have been like culturally significant for them or for the city. And a lot of them are in the Pico area and like talking to people who have been impacted by that or their families were they're like oh I my house used to be right here on like blah 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 and Olympic and the street just doesn't exist anymore yeah because of the freeway right and today only five percent of Santa Monica's population is black um and there are actually fewer black families living in Santa Monica now than in 1960, even though the population of the city is like exponentially more than in 1960. And so I think that like case studies like this just help to like put it into perspective that like, I don't know, this is actually happening and it's, or at least it was, and it's actually impacting people. Absolutely. I mean, this is something that like we've talked about before where people will really try to say like, oh my God, how could a freeway be racist? And it's like, I I don't think people really understand that it's not the freeway itself. It's the people who plan these freeways. Mm -hmm. And it's the laws that were in place at this time that Mm -hmm. allowed people to take advantage of communities that lacked resources and really did not have a seat at the table to fight for themselves. And Mm -hmm. I just think that, you know, it's really, really hard to stand up for yourself when no one is listening to you. And when really no one is considering the fact that they're basically tearing the roots out from under you. Like you have lived in a community for 17 years. You have established so much in that community. You have given so much to that community. And just like that, to see your home and your neighbors gone is, I really could not imagine what that was like. And while I can understand, especially from an urban planning perspective, you know, we do need freeways. I I understand that. But I just think that there was just a lack of consideration for what this actually did to to people. Mm -hmm. And it was just a complete disregard for communities of color and low-income communities who often are considered disposable for the greater good. And it's really bothersome. And the fact that you know, that isn't acknowledged often enough, I think is, is a big problem. It's, it's becoming more acknowledged and I respect that, but I do think still, you know, it's, there's very little you can do due to the permanency of this infrastructure. Right. You know, we can't tear the freeways out, but what can we do moving forward to really help, you know, kind of 
rectify what was done in the past. I well, I'm glad that you asked, <laughs> Natalie, because that is a perfect segue into what I was going to say next. Oh, perfect. Is that the city of Santa Monica actually, at the beginning of 2020, announced a new opportunity. Okay. Um, it's called the Below Market Housing Pilot for Historically Displaced Households. So it's estimated that around 600 families between like the Belmar neighborhood, which is like adjacent to the Pico neighborhood. And it was Belmar was like historically a black community. So it says, I'm reading the, in the announcement from the Santa Monica city government, it says the new below market housing pilot for historically displaced households is looking to match families and or their descendants displaced due to the development of the civic auditorium in the Belmar Triangle neighborhood or the 10 highway in the Pico neighborhood with affordable housing units in Santa Monica. And then in this quote from the mayor, it says, we created this program in the earnest hope that former Santa Monica residents take advantage of this new affordable housing opportunity. If you know community members who were displaced in the 1950s and 60s, we ask for your assistance in sharing the pilot information so that we can identify as many candidates as possible. And this program um, was open to a hundred families or like applicants. And so I think, although this isn't like a perfect system because you, I would imagine you need like documentation or like proof of residence that might not exist anymore or like just getting the word out. Like probably if people have established themselves now in other parts of LA or outside of the state, like- coming back might not be what they would want to do, but I think that it's at least moving in the right direction of like, how can we like provide reparations and provide opportunities for people to like reclaim their community Mm -hmm. or like have access to affordable housing because obviously like access to affordable housing in and of itself is difficult. Right. So I think it's, you know, a, a program that has good intention. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction. I'm curious really how that outreach is going to look like. Is it the city who's going to try to find? Well, so it, the just the application period ended. Okay, got it. So I don't know how they perform the outreach. Okay. The application period, I will say, was only open for like a month, which seems really short because yeah. like, I don't know when they announced it versus when the application period was, but like right. assuming that you would need proof you can't just be like, oh, I live there. Right. Like, I'm assuming that you would need some proof that getting that might be hard, especially if people have passed away or people have moved away and they're trying right. to figure out, you know? So, yeah. yeah. But to end on, because my, you know, my grandma always says, you always are so down. So we're ending <laughs> on happier now of like, there is action being done. There is like yes. initiatives that are being thought of and like, brought to city government and like executed by city government and they're at least recognizing like yeah these urban renewal projects like displaced hundreds of families yeah and now we want to try and do something yeah at least start to make up for it yeah and I I think again like on the brighter note for your yaya (laughs) I would say um I think right now a lot of agencies really are recognizing just the significant history of a lot of these projects. Mm -hmm. And I think 
we have seen, and I have seen even in my own agency, not only that recognition, but also how we operate moving forward is to really, really be very mindful of, you know, where we're putting projects and how we're doing outreach to communities. And it's definitely not perfect, but I even think like USC's program is very, very social justice focused. It's very much so focused on, you know, how we are going to, um, how we're going to talk to communities and allow them a seat at the table so that their voices are heard and not only heard, but acknowledged and represented. And that change comes based on, you know, their feedback and, and their desires. And I think there's like this really hard, you know, kind of balance of we want to listen to communities and what they want and what they desire, but we also have to be mindful of, you know, we have requirements as as urban planners that we have to follow and there are rules and laws and things that we have to acknowledge as well. And so that's a balance that I think is kind of coming more, I'm sorry, kind of coming through a bit more. And I think it's just making sure that we are acknowledging this history so that it doesn't repeat itself is just so important. And I, I do think that many, many organizations and, and city governments are beginning to, you know, take those steps forward in the right direction. Um, and I'm just, I'm hopeful that also, you know, this new generation of planners and the people that are going to be graduating soon and, and our class that's going to be graduating soon, like, I hope that you know, we continue that work moving forward and that, you know, we really do have social justice as a priority, you know, in all of our work, because I think that's just so important. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not only important, it's essential. Yeah. Well, I think that covered it pretty well. For yes, a little it was a nice little uh, short episode for you guys. Yeah. We are both, Sam is traveling for the holidays. I am not traveling, but you know, we've both just been so busy. So we definitely wanted to put an episode out and I'm, it's a little bit shorter this time, but we definitely hope you guys enjoyed kind of learning about this. And as we said, like, this is only one of a few episodes that we're going to be putting out kind of talking about freeways we're kind of going to then go into, you know, freeway expansion and, and what that looks like. Cause we get a lot of comments and questions from, from folks. And so this is definitely something that, you know, we will continue talking about. And you're, when you say freeway expansion, you mean like demand, like even if freeways are expanded, like it doesn't necessarily mean that traffic is going to be any less, right? Exactly. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about latent demand. And yeah. demand I was trying to remember the word. I was like, yeah. demand, demand. demand yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we'll be talking about that soon because we've gotten a few questions where, you know, people have said like, well, why wouldn't it be more efficient to expand the freeway? And even when I talk to some of my friends who aren't, you know, in the urban planning field, they always say like, well, wouldn't it be that like you expand the freeway and then that creates obviously more room. So then of course there's less traffic and it's like, actually it's quite the opposite. And so that's what Sam and I want to talk about moving forward. And we just have some more stuff that we want to share with you guys. So we thank you so much for listening to this episode and we can't wait to talk more about this. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts.
And remember guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not. <laughs>